0: everybody and welcome to the Sunny 16 podcast. You are listening to show number 139, which as far as I'm aware is not a number that denotes a strange shape of film. But I stand to be corrected, I am sure. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show. Uh, uh, we have uh, both uh, my delightful and uh, superior co-hosts uh, here this week. Rach, first of all, how are you doing?
1: Hi. Uh, yes, I'm. I'm here. I'm. I'm back from having been uh, been ill. Uh, I'm glad that I was able to do backing paper with Graham this week, obviously. Um, and uh, unfortunately, my cough is still lingering. So I have my finger poised over the mute button yet again, and oh, hopefully dear. that will um, that will be good enough. But um, apologies in, ad- in advance if uh, if there's any kind of bits of me coughing in the background but I've got a nice mug of hot tea so it should keep me going
0: good stuff good stuff I I was listening to backing paper earlier today um it seemed that when you the day you recorded
1: that you were having quite a party that's right I was first year old birthday party done right that's <laughs> what I think uh it was the only way to get through it no mainly Jake. it was uh it was lovely I had a really lovely day and actually I um I took my my new OM- OM1 with me um put a roll of film through it Probably wasn't my most sensible decision to take a camera that I've barely used <laughs> to a party. But, you know, um, I did manage to get a few shots. I didn't quite nail the focus on all of them. And um, and I realized um, after I'd shot, I think, about um, six or seven shots that I had it set to a 15th of a second or something instead handheld. So uh, those didn't come out brilliantly.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, but, on. you know, mm. it's
1: uh, learning, isn't it? It's a learning curve. And uh, you just have to take some time to get used to a uh, particular camera, I think, but you, you do
0: because I, I know yeah. that I can't shoot at That apart mm. from on one camera, on my Bronica, I can shoot handheld at a fifteenth.
1: I remember you saying this before, and I just think, wow, I, I suppose it's quite. A he- well, it's not a heavy camera, but it's heavier, isn't it? Maybe that helps give it a bit of stability. Uh,
0: um, uh, yeah, yes, it, it is heavy enough to outweigh my the effects of my caffeine addiction. <laughs> <laughs> There's an equation in there somewhere. Well, <laughs> oh, no,
1: oh, don't make me laugh. It makes me cough.
0: Okay, well, let you go on mute, and and I will go to <laughs> there. She goes. Uh, that was a quick new <laughs> you and I will go to uh, of course my, my other delightful and delicious co-host who was cackled <laughs> nicely in the background there Graham how you doing
2: I'm doing very well thank you Aid. I've had a lovely few days with my boys which culminated in this morning uh, me dragging him out in the sunshine and making them pose for some pictures I'm like, I've got to get some cheap shot pictures um and so I took them to the local um uh historical ruins i suppose is the best way of describing them it's like okay let's go there it'll be quiet there you know we can do this in peace it wasn't quiet there at all um and but they were you know they're great they're both quite game for this kind of thing especially my (laughs) oldest when he wasn't just running around the place like a loon um and i took a few pictures and then halfway through me taking pictures went oh no the last time i took this camera out was when it was snowy so um i'd I'd push the exposure, co- exposure compensation up by one and a half stops. <laughs> uh, so, oops. Well, let's see how much latitude the well, Silbera what film... Shooting? What were you
0: shooting? Silbera, okay. Yeah,
2: Silbera 200 black and white film. So, eh, should be all right. I'm going. right. Let's say in advance I'm going for a high-key look because fashion. So that's why <laughs> I wanted...
0: Okay, that's, if you just said that right, then we, you'd have been fine. But now you've shared with the internet uh... the, the that it was a mistake, I'm pretty sure whoever our celebrity judge is when the time comes will absolutely downgrade you for that, and rightly so.
2: Yeah, you're
1: probably. What right. for telling the truth? <laughs>
0: yeah, the only, crime, the only crime is being caught, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's
2: true. I'm to just too honest for my own good. Well, I mean, I'm working on the theory that I'm probably the only one that's taken any pictures yet. Of either of you two?
0: Um, um, <laughs> uh, mm, 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 mm. Um, I was hoping, actually, uh, to, uh, that you were going to do some um, uh, some selfies for th- for this because I was I have this picture of you know Jesse from the Fast Show, you know coming out from behind <laughs> the shed door. I saying, oh, yes, this week I will mostly be wearing Dolce and Gabbana.
2: <laughs> I mean, to be honest, that's pretty much what my two boys are like. I think they are remarkably close to Jesse from the Fast Show.
0: <laughs> okay all right oh, so- sorry boys yeah your yeah, dad's letting you down there <laughs> like, okay all right well before you say anything more nasty about your your delightful boys graham um why don't you introduce our super special guest for today
2: yeah we do have a super special guest with us today um it's somebody who we kind of came to know it feels like only in the tail end of last year with an exciting new thing he was doing and in the intervening period there's been numerous things out of his stable of fine quality products so it is long overdue that we are joined by Ethan Moses from Camera Dactyl. Ethan welcome to the show
3: hey guys thanks for having me on (laughs) it's
2: great to have you here so yeah i first got to know you when the camera dactyl which as far as i know and please correct me if i'm wrong the camera dactyl uh that beautiful colorful um ah delight of a 4x5 camera (laughs) um was hitting kickstarter was that the first camera related thing that you'd made
3: uh it was the first camera related thing that i've sold uh that i've made but um yeah, I've spent a lifetime building wacky things and, and cameras and such.
2: So let's dive into all that stuff then. So first off, analog photography, is this a long-time passion for you?
3: Uh, yeah. Uh, do, um, do, you want, do you want me to go, like, where do you want me to start here? Um, did you come out of the womb with a camera? Let's start there yeah, at, yeah, and did. move forward. Okay, okay. Um so I'll take it even farther back. Uh, my... <laughs> <laughs> when I was a <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um my grandpa was a photographer in World War Two, um and he got out of the army, bought a or actually he was in the navy, he bought a um Uh, like a house on the GI Bill and started a business. Uh, He ran a photo studio, it was called Eastern Studios in New York, it was uh, right around Times Square. Um, He did, you know, pretty well, put all his kids through college. Um, That was my mom's father, and my dad was also a photographer of sorts, although not professional. And um, so yeah, I mean, my uncles took pictures, I have always been around it. Um, I got real into it in... Oh, let's see, I was about 12 or 13 years old. Um, We were going to go on a family trip to the Grand Canyon, and uh, I thought I was like a mountain adventurer, although I was like a weird fat kid who grew up in the Bronx, so there was not many mountains mountains to climb, but we were going to go to the Grand Canyon, and so I spent my life savings at that point on a Nikon N60, uh, at B and H, which I still remember, um, and yeah, I broke my ankle like two weeks later. We had to cancel our trip because I couldn't really walk. My mom felt super sorry for me and uh, bought me an enlarger. And I spent that summer in a cast, sitting on my bathroom with like uh, bathroom floor with a you know towel over the window. My enlarger propped on the toilet and a bunch of trays in the tub, and kind of been you know hooked ever since.
2: That's fantastic. So that's the camera side. How did the making side come about?
3: Oh, boy. Um, So I guess there's there's a couple threads that lead into it. Um, I've built some cameras before back, you know, 15 years ago or so when I was in college, Uh, built an 8x10 just because it was you know, cheaper to do so back then than buying one for many thousands of dollars. I was a college kid, and I bought like a fifty-dollar process lens on on eBay at the time. Um, and so, I've always sort of, you know, built and tinkered with cameras and built darkroom equipment, that sort of stuff, but just for myself. Um, professionally, I build like uh, industrial equipment, uh, machines, electronics, that sort of thing. Um, I think around. Uh, spring or summer last year I bought a 3D printer for the purpose of ripping the extruder off and mounting a laser on it to etch uh, printed circuit boards. Um, I was waiting for some chips to come in from China that, uh, you know, I didn't know their exact footprint pattern and so I never actually ripped the extruder off it and I had this printer on my desk for, you know, like a month sort of just waiting and I still had no chips come in and uh, uh, I don't know. I, I thought maybe I could build some cameras with it. Um, and I just sort of started with what was simplest, um, which to me was, was a fully folding four by five field camera. Um, I guess, this, of course it was. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I think like a pinhole camera would have been probably the simplest, but, um, you know, I would really like to build, and, and this is still on my list, and we'll talk about my dream camera, uh, notebook later, <laughs> but, um, I'd like to build, you know, medium format range finders with shutters in them and such, but, um, you know, I, I thought uh, the 3D printer can only print, um, so fine a detail before it's, um, either, you know, not sharp enough detail or, uh, just not strong enough, and so I had to make something reasonably big, and, uh, Yeah. So I kind of made that one camera for myself and thought, well, this is kind of, you know, interesting. Actually for years I bought and sold and brokered, um, photographic and scientific equipment. Um, you know, I bought and sold like a million four by fives in my day. Um, and so I thought like, you know, maybe this would be an interesting product to sell on the internet. And I had never run a Kickstarter campaign before. And so I gave it a shot and, uh, yeah, I was like a victim of my own success. I sold a whole bunch of them and then was tied up in my house for like a month and a half all day, every day, running the printers 24 seven and cutting and folding and gluing bellows. It was, um, a labor of love, but, but it got like a little miserable t- towards the end. Um, but yeah, you know, since then, I think I didn't want to spend like a hundred years filling those orders. So, um, I had gone from that one printer, I think I'm now up to like 12 printers. And so once I filled all those orders, I had all these idle printers and I thought, you know, okay, what else can I make here? And uh, that sort of, you know, led me to uh, making all sorts of products and working on things like that.
2: So the camera dactyl, the first one you made, um, it was not the first reasonably priced 4x5 camera on the market. In fact, it was... I mean, I think it's about...
3: Well, 700 we we, down the list.
2: Yeah, well, no, not quite that many. But there were quite a few. Obviously, the Intrepid has been going for a few years now. Um, the Chroma camera had kick-started very successfully earlier in the year, and at the same time that you were kick-starting yours, um, the standard camera, which is a slightly different thing, but also has quite a lot in common with yours, because the standard's a mono Is it a monorail camera?
3: Yeah. I, yeah, it is a monorail, so it's slightly But it's a very light, you know, nice... Yeah small folding monorail camera that you
2: yeah. use like a field camera um what is it about the camera deck deal that grabbed people's attention so much
0: <laughs> can i answer that one <laughs> you you gone take, <laughs> please <laughs> so so it, it it's it for me it was i'd never seen a camera that looked anything like it that had flowery pattern bellows and 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 multiple colors i mean it's you know it it um, yeah, you know, clearly that's one of the the standout uh, items for me. And then if I'm looking, and I'm looking right now at the uh, one of the pages on your website, and it says dinosaur cameras with modern technology, professional toys. Um, so so I I have also all sorts of questions about who's your branding partner and how do we get to work with them and stuff <laughs> like that. It's just like, sorry that was my answer anyway it was it clicked, the, the color for me first off and then just the overall you know the just the the, the approach to branding it and and, and the offering of it, yeah really really was
3: fresh for me well thank you uh all of that is totally by accident um you know I, <laughs> I've tried to sell all sorts of things on the internet over the years I'm pretty good at selling like industrial vacuum pumps and uh spray paint gun equipment and camera parts and things that have been branded by others. I had a horrible failure trying to sell women's clothing that I imported from <laughs> Thailand and Vietnam years ago uh, because it had no branding and I had to make my own and I've never been able to uh, convince people that they would look cooler wearing the same things as me. Uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, I, I was actually kind of shocked about this. I, I tried to write it about it in Emulsive um, a while back is that, for me i'm totally a uh function over form guy and like the the camera dactyls wound up being all these crazy colors because i just bought whatever was cheap that week uh on amazon in terms of uh, plastic filament when i was making my prototypes and they just happened to be like you know one week nobody was buying hot pink and so i could get it for you know a couple bucks a roll and then one week it was baby blue and my first prototype looked sort of like a Barbie Dream Cam. Um, and I thought it was kind of funny. Like I, I really just I, I like things that that work, and I don't really care so much about how they look. Sort of personally, you know. I, I drive like a uh, like a beat up old Snatcher van and a beat up old Jeep. And <laughs> uh, you know, like like it, it's really about what what these things can do for me but um, because they were in crazy colors I think the internet really picked up on it and, and dug it and I've been sort of, you know, it doesn't cost me anything extra to print a file in red or blue instead of black and so I've been going with it and so, so far so good. I am not a marketing genius.
2: I mean you say that this was all just happenstance because you know you just got whatever was cheapest, but you chose the patterns that were going on the bellows i mean that that was a deliberate choice you clearly lent into what was going on there
3: yeah i I leaned into it for sure um you know i I think things are you know sort of funny and what i can't tell is that um certainly i've i've kept the aesthetic right i think um crazy colored particularly the camera grips if you um you show a black camera grip against a black camera on a white backdrop, it's really hard to see what the, uh, what the shape of the thing is, right? And so I always show things in crazy colors. But, um, yeah, I think I sell a lot of everything in, in black. Um, I made black an option for the camera dactyl, for all of the plastic and all of the bellows. But um,
1: That sounds like a crazy idea to me. Oh,
3: blah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I made the pro version, uh, hot it's pink like the premium model. They charge more for that. Um, but yeah, uh, most people, most of the designs of that first camera dactyl that I put out on my website <laughs> and, and um, Instagram were just custom orders from, from people. Um, it was not me who who designed all of those things.
2: So following on from the the success of the camera dactyl and these fairly um the fact that the color schemes really grab people's attention at the very least did this influence you when you moved on to making butter grips which was the second thing that we saw coming out of you
3: Yeah absolutely um you know so and again there's uh w- probably way more accidents in in you know any of the design work I do than I would care to admit but, um, yeah, you know, I noticed that, that people really dug the crazy colors. Um, I guess I just started making camera grips for the cameras I had around, and then um, people were into them on the internet, and um I started borrowing cameras from my buddy Dennis, and I made cameras for all or sorry grips for all of his cameras, and then sort of have been working out from there. Um, again, you know, I would just show them in, I had all of these, you know, colored plastics from, uh, the left over, and so I showed them in crazy colors. I think it's really hard to show the, uh, shape of a black grip, um, or also a white grip on white backdrops. It's just my tabletop setup happens to have a white backdrop. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed is, like, they did a Petapixel article on the Butter Grips, and, um... I think, you know, it had something like 39, 40 comments and 99% of them were like, um, these are terrible. You should go jump in a river. (laughs) Uh, How dare you put a baby blue grip on my classic Leica. Um, I
2: can't believe that response was on Petapixel.
3: yeah, Yeah, which was funny. You know, I was really glad for every one of those, you know negative comments i probably sold three or four grips um <laughs> so the,
0: that, that's 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 heartwarming to hear that yeah, is. I mean, yeah because yeah we, we we end up talking quite a lot on this show about how, how rude people could be on the internet but the fact that those people being rude has a positive impact is awesome
3: oh yeah I mean, well, I don't know that it's their being rude uh, has the positive impact, but I I like to view it as as such, like uh, any press is good press. I'm still too small to like effectively buy, you know, Facebook or Instagram ads. I'm not going to buy a spot in the Super Bowl. So anybody who's talking about me, you know, all, all the better if I can if I can con my favorite celebrities into having me on their podcasts. Uh you know, <laughs> great. Uh, well, if you, uh, if, you
0: ma- if you manage to make that happen, let us know, because we'll come yeah. on with you. <laughs>
3: nice. um, yeah, so the funny thing is, is like I sell, let's say, 60 to 70 percent of the grips in all black. Um, but also, I think nobody would have ever covered me if I just showed black camera grips. It was mm-hmm. nothing new. You know, I showed glow in the dark camera grips and color changing camera grips that turn from... Purple to pink or green to yellow when you you know warm them in your hand, just sort of <gasps> like the I, I, like
1: the um, t-shirts that I yeah, exactly. used to have in the nineties. Oh my god, amazing!
3: Yeah, so good. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so I, I think like it, it elicits that sort of response like uh, that rage had like like it's it's funny and maybe people like that eventually buy a black camera grip, but you know nobody would talk about a a new black camera grip for their Leica, they, they exist already, you know? And I, I think it's fun.
2: Yeah. So how many different camera models did you end up making grips for? And is this a thing that people can get in touch with you and say, I've got this camera, I'd really love a grip for it. Can you make me one?
3: Um, yes and yes. So um, let's see. On my website now, I have, I think there's about 30 models. Let's see. Yeah, there's about thirty models that I have uh, grips for, and some of those models will cover multiple cameras. Like, I think my most popular grip right now is the Nikon FM, FE, FM2, FE2, FM2N, and uh, what it would be FM3T or something like that. Those are all the same grip. Um, so I've got about thirty models. A bunch of them fit a bunch of different cameras. Um, and then there's a section on my website uh, on the drop-down menu that says request a new product. And I've got a list on that uh, on that page of cameras that I have sort of um, already requested that I have on my list of things that I would like to add. I think my most requested um, camera is the Minolta CLE, and second most is the Leica CL. Um I have on my desk right now, I borrowed a Voigtlander R3A for my buddy Dennis that I've got to make a grip for. And yeah, basically, um, people can request new products. I'll do, you know, occasionally custom design work, but that is, you know, engineering rates. So probably not going to make a custom grip for your camera unless you want to pay for, you know, three or four days worth of work. Um, But uh, if it's just like we would like to see, you know, uh, the Pentax LX for example you know I, I will throw that on the list and when I can find somebody to borrow it from or uh, make friends with the uh, camera store in town and, and go measure it up I will you know uh, make a grip and throw it on the website.
2: Um, these are obviously all things that you're 3D printing to make work I'm assuming. Um, how is it with something like the hand grip in particular, where quite literally the feel of it is really, really important? Um, because when I think of 3D printed stuff, and I literally only think of 3D printed stuff because mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever had my hands on any, um, I don't think of something that's got a super nice tactile finish to it. How do you get around that? Or have you managed to get around that?
3: Um, I mean, the grips are sort of just smooth, hard plastic, much like uh, you know uh, the metal grips that people have. Um, I've been thinking about making some sort of rubberized coating, uh, but I think that's not going to wear very well, and traditionally grips have not been rubberized. Although, you know, if you look at something like the Nikon F100 or F5 or something like that, those all have, you know, uh, built-in rubber grips. Oh, um, you
1: should make it out of like solid bronze or something. That would be cool. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. it would. You know, so I've occasionally had a request like, Can you make this in metal? And and uh, you know, I say, sure, I can make it in metal. Fifteen hundred bucks, because (laughs) that's sort of what it would cost me to have it produced out of metal, right? I I just don't have a machine shop exactly at my disposal, Uh, but I can send the files to have them printed in whatever you want. They're just sort of wildly expensive to do it that way. Um, So.
2: You did the butter grip. I mean, the thing that seems absolutely consistent with your workflow is that barely is one thing out the door that your mind is already onto something else. Um, and so I think the next thing I saw was, um, gosh, it's hard keeping track of what was actually a product and what was just an idea. Cause I know we definitely saw you having a go with shutters, um, but then probably the um, range finder, is that what was next on the drawing
3: board? Yeah. Well, so I, I like to call it my dream camera journal. I keep it next to my bed. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) um you know so adorable (laughs) uh, so i I like to think about like you know my my intelligence more as a laser beam than a flashlight you know I'm, i'm real good at like sitting down and um doing something for three days on end until i'm real greasy and need a shower and could probably sleep but i also you know will lose track of everything else in my life while i'm obsessing about one thing or another. So, you know, the way I combat that is I make lists of things so that I can forget about them for a little while. Um, And one of those big lists is my dream camera journal, um, where, you know, I've probably got 10 or 15 types of cameras or pieces of camera or photographic equipment in that journal. And I'd I'd like to just work on things one at a time, Um, you know, start a project, finish a project, move on to the next thing and just sort of have a clear head about it. But, um, you know, the the world doesn't always work like that. Um, I had been dinking around with this uh, light meter that I was working on. Uh, well, so, okay, to take it back to range finders, um, I think I've built a good portion of, um, you know, like a medium format range finder with a focal plane shutter. But I also think it will take me six months to a year to actually, you know, finish all of the system so it's a working camera instead of a bunch of camera parts that are in prototype mode. Uh, but also, you know, I kind of need to sell a lot of grips and other cameras and things in the meantime so that while I'm sitting here prototyping for six months, it's not a total loss if it's a fail and I never bring anything to market and so you know I've tried to bring the simplest ideas out first and so you know while I'm prototyping there's no reason I can't have 10 printers running in the back room I think I have four running right now printing some orders um, it makes it a little bit more productive for me to sit here and you know, not shower for weeks on end and draft uh, and make prototypes. Um, so yeah, my my medium format rangefinder right now is is sort of a uh, box of prototypes to my left and a dream. And I I sort of took it back to, you know, the the grips have been like way more productive for me business wise than the original four by five cameras just because you know they don't really take me much work. They come off the printer. I pop out one little support piece. I put in a tripod screw and throw it in the mail, and, you know, usually it's good. Um, The original 4x5 took five or six hours to assemble and, you know, make the bellows and that sort of thing. And so I've been working on simpler things. Um, I had been working on this meter for a while, um, but the I don't know, we, maybe we talk about the meter later, but that that sort of ran into a bunch of roadblocks where I had to wait for, you know, parts to come in from China. And during that time, I started working on a different camera. Uh, just, I would like to do one thing at a time, but I also don't like sitting around for two weeks and not making anything, uh, just waiting on parts. Uh, that's sort of how this whole camera thing started in the first place. And so the cameradactyl OG 4x5 came out of, Actually, a request I think from your your uh, web manager, Photo Dudens. Uh,
2: yeah, our, our, our semi-literate photo web manager. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <For> sure. <laughs> yes, Matthew, uh, who I, I mean, I would say bullied you into it in some ways. They just sort of got in touch and menaced you no, into making this it thing. It wasn't
3: like that. I mean, we've we've become friends, uh, you know, internet friends over the year, and he had actually asked me to make this thing months and months and months ago when i was in the middle of a bunch of other things and work projects and i just thought you know yes it is a product i could offer for a couple hundred bucks but you know for me to drop what i'm doing you know if you had to pay me for two weeks worth of work like this does not make any sense uh go buy a different camera and i made a bunch of suggestions which um yeah eventually i had what I knew would be two free weeks to sit down and do nothing while I waited for some circuit boards for the light meter. And, um, yeah, that's, that's how that camera came about. Simple enough.
2: Well, I mean, uh, we should probably talk about the OG because I suspect whilst for a lot of people, they may well have seen the camera deal because it's such a distinctive memorable, memorable camera. And also it's a four by five folding field camera so you kind of got an idea of what that looks like but the OG um, is a more distinct and I'm not aware of many other cameras that really do what the OG does so I think it would be great if you could actually describe the OG, how it works um, and what people need to think about if they're interested in trying it because it is in many ways it's a perfect solution for people who want the simplest way and the simplest camera to use for 4x5, because it's kind of a 4x5 point-and-shoot almost, um, very yeah. almost. So can you talk about exactly what it is, what what it does, what it doesn't do, um, and what the options are for people who, who might be interested sure. in it? Sure. Um,
3: so, um, you know, there were these aerial mapping cameras, both made by, um, you know, I think there were some Graflex ones Um, there were, there were certainly American made ones. There were certainly, uh, German made ones. I think, um, they were called hand cameras with a, with a K. Um, and then later on, um, the Globoscope was a really, uh, crazy looking chromed, you know, maybe 1980s disco version of this that was a very, uh, beautiful and expensive metal camera. I think it was made in New York City. And then later on, um i think the uh, travel wide was like a really cheap injection molded version of this um, maybe three or four years ago and basically what it is is um you know a four by five film holder with a focusing screen on the back and uh, a handle and a nose cone um, and then there's a focusing helix that you mount a large format lens in and this is a you know fairly simple camera to design at least you know, given 3D printing technology, because the aperture, the shutter, and the lens all reside in in one unit. Um, And so uh, I like to use it with a a accessory range finder so that I can, um, you know, focus through the focusing screen while the camera's on a tripod, measure a distance, focus on that distance, and then just mark the distance on the focusing helical, the focusing ring. Um, and then I guess you could just use it as a point and shoot on like a hyperfocal distance, which is what photo dude ends is, is doing, um, with a super wide lens. Um, but I like to use a little bit longer lens and, uh, yeah, it's, it's just basically a scale focusing, um, four by five camera. It does not have any, you know, swings and tilts or shifts or, you know, architectural movements, but it does allow you to shoot a really big, piece of film or I like shooting a lot of paper negatives with it too.
2: So with this camera, because it is um, a fixed length, is every camera individually made or not? I mean, I guess you have certain range, but to go with the focal length of the lens. Exactly.
3: Exactly. So um, I think the last, you know. Actually, probably every iteration of this camera only took one or two lens options um, because it doesn't have a bellows. You know, the vast majority of the distance between the lens and the film plane is just taken up by this cone, and of course you have you know a little uh, focusing helix to you know focus back and forth. But also because um, like every Nikon lens is forty something or fifty something millimeters away from the film plane, right? They have a standardized lens mount. Um, large format lenses because usually they're used on a camera with a bellows uh, don't have any sort of standardized flange distance and so pretty much what I've been doing is um, at no extra charge if somebody is willing to make four measurements of their lens which is the uh, shutter diameter, like the the copal size uh, the focal length uh, of the lens which is actually okay the flange focal distance which is if you focus your lens at infinity what is the distance from the front of the lens board or rear of the shutter to the film plane, and also the maximum diameter of the rear lens element and how far that element sticks out behind the lens board. Um, With those four measurements, I can make a cone for just about any lens. Um, And I've had a couple special requests for Macro versions of it. I did one macro version where it would not focus at infinity, but you know would make one to one four x five Polaroid type of things. And yeah, it's, I've I've got the files in such a way that um, I actually just did one this morning for a hundred fifty millimeter Schneider Simar. Um, and then when I add a new one to the repertoire, I just you know add it to the list on the website. So anybody else with a hundred fifty millimeter Schneider Simar does not need to make me those for uh, Measurements, they can just say Schneider Simr 150 millimeter 5.6, and then I will make that because I have the file banked.
2: So, given the fact that obviously you're limited by the length of the cone, which can't be as long as a bellows will extend, um, does that make a big difference to how close focusing some lenses? Because I imagine you just saying about the fact that you did a special sort of macro one, sorry, yeah. I would imagine that, that must make it quite hard to get close with some lenses.
3: Yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the the lens I like to use it with is a 127-millimeter Ektar. It's like a, you know, they're very, very common, you know, sort of the normal wide lens that came on a speed graphic or a crown graphic for many, many years. Um, that lens I can focus from infinity to about maybe three feet, you know, so okay. I'm not going to do any macro with it. Um, the 135 millimeter Optar right now only focuses down to like, you know, four to six feet somewhere in there, um, and you know, so I, I have had a couple people who wanted to shoot one to one macro, so like you know, four inches in real life would be four inches on their, on their sheet of film, and so I just you know made a made a very long bellows, but or nose cone rather, um, but that camera is not. Such a useful general-purpose camera, right? If you can't focus at infinity, uh, but you know, generally they're good for um, you know portraiture, uh, so long as it's not macro portraiture uh, through through infinity.
2: Yeah, I would imagine also that you don't want to be shooting anything that's too close because unless you go down the route of putting ground glass in there, which is kind of going against the kind of ethos of the camera. Um, parallax error is also going to start creeping in in quite a big way because you're using the viewfinder with it. Would that be right?
3: Right. So, I mean, the camera comes with uh, three focusing screen options. Um, so every camera has a focusing screen. Um, I prefer ground acrylic. Um, it's a little less bright than ground glass and you know has more sort of swirly scratches on it than than a nice, you know, perfect piece of glass, but um, the way I treat things, I break glass left and right, um, and so generally I just use the focusing screen for calibration, and I use it um, like a rangefinder or uh, like a scale focusing camera, but you certainly, you know, it's got a tripod mount, you could certainly stick it on a tripod in a studio or whatever, and then uh, focus through the ground glass really precisely for, you know, a shallow depth of field portrait or, or close-up
2: sort of thing with a loop yeah I mean in terms of target audience for this kind of thing um, what kind of photographer do you think that this is best suited for because I suppose as somebody who maybe have not shot 4x5 before um, the appealing part of it is it's much more straightforward than any other option out there you 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 make a choice and that's the choice you're kind of stuck with because you can't change lenses on it. because well I mean you're stuck with that focal length i guess um and um so it's a kind of a one and done thing but obviously the, the trade-off of that is you you lose the movements you lose that flexibility so who is this targeted at
3: yeah so this is something i probably should have put a little bit more thought into it's targeted at <laughs> <on> everybody <laughs> bye 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 um no so i think it um it's not a camera for architectural photographers per se, right? Or, um, I used to shoot a lot of tabletop stuff back in the day when four by five was the industry standard. And we had a lot of, you know, tilts and swings for perspective control. Um, I do a lot of backpacking now and it's, it's been great. It's lighter than my Nikon and has a giant, uh, a giant piece of film. And so I think it's, it's really good for, um, sort of like outdoor adventure or just like throw it in your bag and take it anywhere. Um, one of the things I've been really interested in is shooting some street photography with it. It's, it's, mm. uh, you know, Ooh. I grew up in New York. There's not too much of that out here in Albuquerque, but one of my favorite things to do is just sort of walk around all day from pizza shop to dumpling shop and see what <laughs> crazy things I saw in between and snap a picture. Um, uh, next time I'm, I'm back in New York, I would like to, uh, try this camera at that you know, it's it's very quick to use um, and just sort of light to carry around. Photo Dudens, Matt has been um, taking it around, sort of in Australia, doing this sort of thing with it. And so I think it gives you a big negative or or um, you know paper negative if if you choose. And it's um, you know you don't need a tripod with it. You don't need to uh, set it up and focus super precisely. Like I think you just. Uses his on hyperfocal distance, mm. you know, raises up to his eye, pushes the button, and then continues. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's like a fun sort of everyday carry around camera, beat it up in the caves and the mountains and the canyons. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's good for people interested in trying out 4x5 and, and sort of experimenting with that process. Or, or there's certainly a lot of people who have. You know, special uses. I've made some really wide angle cones uh, for down to like a 47 millimeter Schneider XL Um, and some, you know, uh, shallow depth of field portraiture is another good thing to do with it. But uh, I'm excited to see some more street photography come out of it. You don't usually see four by fives in that. That yeah
0: I, I think they'd be good for that because with, with the colors because yeah y- you're going to attract people are going to look at you aren't they if you put one of those up to your eye people are going to look at you and they're not going to be they're going to be curious i imagine you if you did use this for street photography you'd get a you get a lot of photos of really curious looking people
3: <laughs> you know maybe maybe i you know i've been uh i live out here in the desert so it's it's uh when I go taking pictures, I'm usually like uh, 100 miles from the nearest person. Uh, but, yeah, I, I suppose you, you might get some attention. Uh, but also I make them in black. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I, I have to say I, th- I think they're really cool. And what you were saying about um, the fact that they open up avenues for using 4x5 that weren't practical practically open before. I've been chatting to our friend Alex Purcell recently, who got an Intrepid for Christmas, and he's getting used to it and having fun with it. But you know, as he says, whenever you go out with it, you need to allow quite a chunk of time because it it just is a slow, you need to have it on a tripod, you need to set it up, you need to do all the focusing and everything like that. There can't be any spontaneity with it at all. Um, And I love the fact that this camera means that you can do that, the fact that you can go and do street photography with that. Um, uh, I think it it opens up a lot of creative possibilities. Um, I think it opens up as many avenues in that realm as it closes down by losing out on the things like the movement and the extra flexibility. It's very cool.
1: Um, can I ask a really stupid question, Ethan? Um, I'm assuming it works the same way in that it's, it's one shot and then you put it into your dark bag and change to your next paper negative or... Um, yeah so piece it, of film, I mean,
3: yeah? it takes standard um 4x5 film holders so <laughs> yep. you know generally I'll load up 10 or 20 of them and then you know I'll just swap the film holders and then at my leisure at home I will change out the film from the film holders put them in a box cool. go develop them later
1: So you can kind of shoot as many as you as many as you've got loaded up into film holders basically then can't you
3: yeah as as many as you are strong enough to carry around you know i I can fit about three film holders in a back pocket of my jeans um so that's that's about six if i don't want to carry a bag
2: hang on wait you can carry six four by five film holders in the back pocket of your jeans
3: yeah yeah i got some big jeans um
2: (laughs) i mean people (laughs) talk about carl from the classic lenses podcast having mom jeans but these must be grandmother jeans that you're wearing
1: well don't get me started on pockets and jeans for for women uh, no don't get me started on it
3: interestingly uh you bring this up um so you know like i said I, i have brokered um industrial equipment and uh once in a while i would liquidate a store going out of business um I happened to buy eighteen hundred pairs of jeans about two or three years ago, and so now I have a garage full of jeans and you know they sell once in a while on eBay. I'm not super um, you know good at convincing people that uh, that they would look cool wearing my jeans. yeah, so I have uh these eighteen hundred pairs of jeans in my garage, and you can kind of tell they're not good jeans, but they're very big and since like two years ago when I bought these, I. <laughs> They're not I good, haven't... but they are very big. Is that what yeah. you got on your eBay thing? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I so they were song. very expensive at, at some time when the store actually existed. But um, yeah, I haven't bought jeans in. Maybe three years now, I've just been wearing these ridiculous fashion jeans. And you can tell anybody who's my friend in Albuquerque, because they all wear the same jeans. <laughs> about like 900 pairs of them have exactly the same fake patch pattern on them. Like, uh, like a
1: weird cult.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, my so
1: God.
3: I thought about doing this in my Kickstarter campaign and everybody discouraged me because uh, they thought I would, you know, come off like a moron as like giving away a free pair of jeans with every purchase. Although for my friends, I have packed a bunch of cameras and jeans instead of bubble wrap. But I think I think I'm gonna try and sell photographers' jeans with yes. uh, the next, yeah, do the it. Next yeah. Product.
2: If, if these are big enough to carry four by five side, dark size in the back, they right, perfect. Yeah, these are definitely photographers' <laughs> jeans and are therefore worth twice as much as they were in the first place.
3: <laughs> Ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. Um, well, I, I think the OG, as I said, sounds fantastic, and it's it's kind of interesting seeing the evolution because clearly the butter grip give you a, a real lead-in to the OG because you know you can definitely see that in there. I I love the fact that the the grip on the OG has got the plunger built into the handle. Is that kind of a standard thing with it?
3: Yeah. So it's actually um, it's just got a hole through the handle so you can yeah. slip a standard tripod. Gotcha uh, tripod not tripod um cable release through it, much like an old Linhoff grip or something like that. yeah,
2: yeah, um no, it's really cool, it's a really smart design, Thank um you. and that's that has only been in the last month you've released that
3: yeah, I think a little less than a month ago. okay, I'm still, so like, you were... <laughs> excited to see what people make with it and send me some pictures back.
2: So that was a whole month ago. So obviously you've moved on since then because boring. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, light meters. This is the newest thing that you've moved on to. Um, how? Actually, does
3: one... I released a new product two days ago, but uh, <laughs> kind of like a, s- a simple thumb film case product. But yeah, uh, the newest uh, one that I'm really interested in.
2: <laughs> sure. <laughs> so talk to us about light meters. Then, what goes into making a light meter? Why are you even making a light meter?
3: Okay, so this, this story starts back in 1942. Um, <laughs> no, so um, a while back, uh, my buddy Dennis, who lends me all these cameras to make grips for, uh, was at my house and he was flipping through my camera graveyard, which is basically a bucket of broken cameras I keep over here. To Well, they came in handy, actually, for making grips, but um, I don't know why I keep them taken apart and tinkering with. Anyway, he saw I had a Yashica Electro uh, 35GSN. He said, "Oh, I used to use this camera in college. It's great." And I said, "Ah, the meter doesn't work, and it's only uh, auto exposure. It's no good." And he was like, "Man, you should fix it. It's it's a really, you know, good camera." And so I was thinking about it and thinking about it, and I did a little research, and uh, that led me down two projects. One was adding manual shutter speeds to that camera. Um, I found a little bit of vague information on Flickr, and then. Sort of got out the electrical tester and uh, ripped it all apart. And then once I figured out how to do that, I needed to build a shutter tester so that I could calibrate the manual shutter speeds. Um, so I made little YouTube videos about how to build a shutter tester. I didn't think that was a you know profitable product to bring to market, but useful for a few other nerds out there. Um, and then you know same deal with the Yashica. So then I had this Yashika electro that had no meter, but still working shutter speeds, and I thought, ah, oh, I should probably make a meter for this thing, um, and that sort of led me down this path. Um, I guess the way I would normally do things, sort of professionally, would be to use a microcontroller, um, and like an LED or LCD screen, and a bunch of buttons, um, but. Here in the States, and I'm sure there's an analog of this in in the UK and the EU, um, if you have anything that's over 1.7 megahertz and or um, 9 nanowatts, which pretty much any microcontroller is, um, you have to get it FCC tested, um, which is, I'm sure it would pass, but it's expensive because you have to, Tested in an electromagnetically anechoic chamber, which is a couple million dollar facility. And so I don't know how many meters I was going to sell, and uh, I just kind of thought that I would make a meter in an analog way, kind of like the 60s or 70s. Um, so it's a little bit more limited, but um, it's kind of an interesting, very simple uh, type of thing. Um, I won't go into boring bits about like how how the thing works but um you know it's basically a bunch of resistors and switches it uses two little you know 10 cent transistors in it and uh yeah it takes like a normal photo battery um meters and hold stops and i made a little 3d printed case so it can uh sit in your hot shoe or cold shoe and uh yeah it's kind of like um one of those Kiev or Hasselblad meters where you just turn one dial and then it's got a you know calculator knob so you can calculate any sort of exposure out from there.
2: Yeah, that sounds fantastic. It sounds like an, as somebody who has a lot of cameras with uh, non-functional or just non-existent light meters, this seems like a hugely useful thing. Is it a bargain price, Ethan?
3: Uh it's a medium bargain price it's it's cheaper than everything else out there um unfortunately it's my only product where i can't just print everything um so i have to buy a lot of off-the-shelf parts um i'm selling them i think for uh, what are they 85 dollars right now um which is you know like a half of the next cheapest meter um but, you know, I would love to make one day like a digital meter that's like 50 bucks and smaller and has a bigger range and is more accurate. Uh, but, you know, to amortize the testing costs to legally sell the thing, it would be, you know, I'd have to sell hundreds and hundreds of them. So right now it's like a it's a medium bargain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is such good advertising. I'm an Yay. advertising genius. You're a natural um. at this.
2: What what is the range like on this? Because I know I've got my um range, my range, but my light meter uh is a seconic one, but it's the analog seconic one, and it uh-huh. um it's great. But and I'm, I'm sure yours is the same. Dark. I, exactly. Yeah. Which yeah. is reasonable. It's fair, and I'm guessing that this is probably a similar issue that you know your your first gen one will have as well. Is that right?
3: Yes. Exactly. Um. So like. Um, I have a old, like, uh, Leica MC Meter, or a Leica Meter MC, whatever it's called, and that's got a couple different, um, you know, uh, uh, photo cell arrays in it, I believe, although I haven't ripped it apart, and they're better at low light, but they're also very expensive and hard to find them that are still working because they're so old. Uh, but, yeah, you know, mine is great in... Uh, broad daylight down to like um a bright room but you know it's it's not good for metering nighttime or or you know really dark rooms that sort of thing
2: can you putting aside the cost issues you mentioned can you sort of see a path forward like okay yeah if i could spend the money to do this i could overcome this boundary or is it more complicated than just throwing money at it
3: no so it's i mean actually um I am much better at programming than I am at um, analog circuit logic. I just sort of take things back and uh, learn some some things from like, uh, you know, year one physics in college. Um, I think it would be much easier for me to build a digital light meter and it would be smaller and cheaper and sort of better in every way. Uh, but. I don't think I will get I, I got a bunch of dream cameras in my journal ahead of that. And so, you know, maybe it's something I would do next year with a Kickstarter campaign, but it would have to raise like, you know, 10 or 20 grand for it to be worth my time to have the thing tested so I could sell it. And, you know, the ethic of cameradactyl and butter grip is, you know, it's really nice to be able to think of a product on Friday, make a prototype on Saturday make a working prototype on Sunday and sell it on Monday. Um, (laughs) Although the the meter kind of took me weeks and months, you know, I I made a working prototype on a pin board here and then I thought I would put it in a little 3d printed case and I tried to solder it by hand and everything was too small. So I had to go to surface mount, which meant I had to uh, design a PCB and send that out and wait two weeks for the PCB to come back. And then during that time I made the camera OG and then, After that, I spent about three weeks waiting on different types of uh, acrylic to laser cut the dial numbers because, you know, it just, uh, they seemed like uh, it would be trivial just to put numbers on a disc. But, uh, yeah, I went through about 25 different ways to, you know, uh, from like putting stickers on top and trying to print the numbers into the actual piece to engraving and painting the engraving or... Uh, painting the acrylic and engraving through the paint. Eventually, I, f- you know, I found a two-color acrylic that you know you could scratch at all day, and it won't uh, it won't scratch up. But um, yeah, so, uh, I don't know where I went with that. But I, I think the, the ethos is like not sending it out for three to ten thousand dollars worth of testing and waiting months and months. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a really sort of small company, and so I made something pretty useful, pretty cheap. I think a lot of people are going to like it, Um, but, you know, for everything I make, I always want to uh, send it off to somebody who will print it in metal or CNC machine it for $10,000, but then it, you know, doesn't, no longer is like a viable product. Terrible at marketing.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just sitting here absolutely astounded. You're just like, oh, yeah, I was waiting for some parts, so I did the next thing. And it's so do, do, I gotta, I gotta ask, do you read sci fi at all?
3: A little, yeah. I'm, I'm a, I was a pretty big Star Trek fan as a kid.
0: Okay, so, so, uh, in which case you'll have heard, I, I'm i sure, of uh, William Gibson um in in i think 2014 um uh he wrote a book or he released a book i should say called the peripheral which is like a you know future dystopian society where everything is 3d printed <laughs> <laughs> i you know if if you haven't read it um you know uh, you, you, you might actually it might be a little too close to home i suppose <laughs>
3: well, what like. is the name of
0: the book uh, it's called the peripheral and it's by <laughs> by, by william gibson you know um uh, and for any listeners who recognise the name but can't remember the stories, you've got the the, the very famous stuff like Neuromancer and stuff. Like, uh, it, uh, awesome. Are all great uh, William Gibson books.
3: The Peripheral is now next on my list. Thank you. Dave. Okay.
0: <laughs> oh, awesome. So, so it, it, yeah, it, it's um, it, it, the 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 story is 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 not the same as your story. I just because you because I now have this mental image of you. In, in in a house or, or where there's, there's a back room somewhere that's just full of 3D printers and and uh, uh, and and you can print anything for everybody and you know if anybody's jeans wear a hole you can print them a new pair of jeans and
3: you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is not super inaccurate. I have a room, two rooms behind me, filled with 3D printers whirring away right now. Uh, my latest product was this morning. I made a toilet paper holder roll adapter for my girlfriend. Uh, our the the toilet paper spring thing that holds the roll was too wide for the arm thing, so I I made some adapters. It was like uh you know it's it's really nice to be able to you know have a very simple product problem that you can um, you know in five minutes or sort of bang out a solution in any sort of shape. But of course, everything that I'm interested in becomes more and more complicated until the point where I'm you know three weeks down and have. Uh, five boxes of broken plastic parts at my feet.
1: Mm. <laughs> Have you also seen one called Gremlins
3: <laughs> yes yes of
4: course
1: <laughs> I'm just thinking about the fantastic I, I have to say I always loved the inventions that the, the dad made I thought they were fabulous especially when you're talking mm-hmm. about the like toilet roll holder like yeah. adaption and stuff I was like yep that, that seems about right however yours all seem very successful <laughs> to be honest so uh, yeah very cool medium
3: successful at best <laughs> I don't know no, we've
1: got working cameras we've got you know amazing stuff yeah,
2: and and I mean, you talk about your dream book and your dream cameras, and I suppose it's fair to say that, and I use this term very relatively because these fruits are so far out of the reach of everybody else I can think of, but you've done the lower hanging fruits, as you said, your first camera, you went, okay, what's the easiest kind of camera that I can put together? Okay, well, that's a 4x5, because you, know, you can understand that, and the OG is a fairly simple structure. Um but as you go through these, it is gonna get more and more complicated and the things that you need to try and do to progress beyond that. Um you said you want to make a medium format camera. Um how, can, you know, I asked before about can you see a path through this? Can can you sort of see a way that you're gonna be able to get from what you're doing now to where you want to get with camera building, especially using the techniques at the moment of 3D printing and, and sort of the all the advantages and the limitations that come with that?
3: Yes, I mean, that's a really, really interesting question to me. It's something that I think about all of the time, really. And I think a lot of it is really a business question rather than a technology question. We're at this really interesting point in the world now where you can buy electronics that would have run the, the spaceship that we took to the moon for you know pennies from China. Um, you can print physical objects in... Uh, you know, plastics or resins and have them CNC machined in metals. The question is, um, can you do it in a way that's cost effective? And so we're at a point where cameras are getting more expensive, um, which is maybe good for me, but also sad for me if I wanted to say buy an X-Pan. And so, you know, we know that you can build a Mamiya 7. Right. It it has been done before. It is a beautiful camera. The question is, can you build a Mamiya Seven for, let's say, less than a thousand dollars? And I think the answer is, yeah. I think I, I think I could do that. You know, many times over. Um, but then the next question is, how long will it take me to get there? Mm. And so the way I've been a- approaching it is like, um, how much of the low hanging fruit can I pick, such that. You know, whether I have five printers running in the back room or 25, you know, it pretty much makes no difference to me in terms of the work that I've got to do. And so what are the low-hanging STL files that I can come up with such that um, I can make a medium full-time salary to sit here and draft while I babysit the printers? And so I've got a, a whole bunch of things that I... Would like to put out first, um, you know. It's kind of, the, the butter grips have been a very surprising and wild success for me. Um, you know, they don't. I can't quite quit my day job and say I'm never going to design a piece of canning equipment again for, uh, let's say, a salsa manufacturer. Um, but uh, I I've been selling more and more grips every month since I started and. So maybe if I can double or triple or quadruple that, then I can sit down for six months while babysitting the printers and you know work out a range finder, work out a film transport mechanism, that sort of thing. Um, I've got a whole bunch of other things that I've been working on. Um, let's see. I made a list here of, of the <laughs> things that I, I've made. The The low-hanging fruit that I've recently picked is, um, well, this, <laughs> this one wasn't a... a product but um I, I was talking to the danger boys on instagram and i made them a whole bunch of red dots to stick over their cameras to make them higher res i'm not selling those <laughs> <for> <laughs> obvious reasons, but, um, that, that was a funny product and then um, i had a friend who had one of these vintage um, it's like a two screw top film cans that that clamp to your camera strap and uh, you know, I think his was from the seventies or something, and I saw it. And so I made a bunch of those in one twenty and thirty five, and then um, uh, triple versions, which I have never seen. And so I've been selling those as the uh, what did I call them, uh, <laughs> losing track. Uh, the butterbean film case. Um, and- I mean,
2: can we can we look forward to? Uh, um, and I think we all want it—a film bandolier This needs to happen. What? Yeah, least- I was that, just that was thinking me. that. It's I the
0: was imagining. So, uh, do you know what I, w- I was thinking of a band, a bandolier, and it reminded me of a time I don't know. I was a teenager, I think, and I ended up in this bar in London, and there was there was a tequila bar, and all uh, and and all the waitresses were running around this bar, and they had holsters with tequila bottles in, and bandoliers full of shot glasses.
3: <laughs> Classy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a classy place you yeah, <laughs> yeah but but yeah that that would be awesome you, know, you can be with like 35mm you know, and 120 film can, yeah film canisters in the well, of you awesome. can
3: now do that you have to supply, supply the belt i just sent you guys a link to the uh, <gasps> but they don't have
2: belt loops on there Ethan. now come on they you need well, they to do have belt, belt the... loops do they okay okay yeah,
4: huh? so I the, take it back the belt loops <laughs> i take it back yeah um,
3: they screw off and screw on so that if you put them on like let's say a camera strap, you can either screw the back plate on in a way such that it can slide or screw it tight so that it won't slide up and down. It'll always be on the same point in the belt or strap. The single ones don't have a loop, but uh, the doubles and triples do. Did you not get a bulk
2: job <laughs> lot of um, belts with your, your one thousand mom jeans that you got? That you
3: <laughs> I do not have any any belts. I do have a whole lot of backpacks, but that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, even, um
1: Can I just go back to what you were saying, which was really super interesting about uh, super interesting about the um, creating the cameras, but making them for like you say less than a thousand dollars or whatever. Sure. Um, it is another part of that equation the being able to make them at volume because I think that's been part of the thing that we've seen quite a few times on like the Kickstarter projects and things that people have these amazing ideas and they and they do so well at like delivering um, some part of that, but then it's it, it becomes this success that is more than they're expecting and the and the complications and extra things that come along with mass production. Is, yeah. uh, so, like yeah. So
3: I I generally think about it like um, manufacturing and building manufacturing equipment is mm-hmm. is my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm not super awesome at, uh, believe it or not, is like uh, marketing or or uh, you know talking people into buying my jeans. <laughs> and <laughs> um, I generally like I I felt very weird about. Kickstarter for a long time. I, you know, my first project, I I did it because nobody knew who I was. And I I thought that was like a good way to sort of introduce the products (laughs) Mm. to the world. Um, But I never wanted to take people's money for a project that is not like, like, I only put it up on Kickstarter when I had a camera ready to go and a couple produced. And I knew that, you know, I could just buy more printers and build more printers as more orders came in. Um, it did wind up eating about a month and a half of my time uh, to fill those orders and I felt very, you know, stressed out about meeting my responsibility mm-hmm. while while I had everybody's money and I hadn't put the cameras out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think interesting thing about 3D printing, at least for now, you know, with about 12 printers, I am able to keep uh, the orders you know, leaving the door about uh, seven to 10 days after I get an order, certain things can go out, you know, immediately. Um, but yeah, I, I have yet to make something that's such a mass production hit that I can say have an injection molded, right? Like okay. um, the... So yeah, because injection- that seems
1: to be like the next step you know where where there ends up being a few more complications at that point does not it
3: yeah absolutely and i know like uh, hamish with the uh, pixelator like mm-hmm. ran into a whole lot of this and the deal with that is like um injection molding parts is very very cheap per part right uh, mm-hmm. because you're using this giant machine to squirt uh hot plastic into generally a stainless steel mold really quickly and you can make you know a part every couple of seconds um, so the marginal cost is very low but to make the tooling and buy the time on the machine is actually like pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. So a mold Mm -hmm. could cost you anywhere depending upon the size and complexity of the mold from, uh, five to $25,000 for the mold. Mm -hmm. And so, um, things like the travel wide, I thought, you know, years ago was, was very impressive that they had to sell a ton of them just to pay for the mold to be able Mm -hmm. to make them. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas like, the camera dactyl OG, for example, or or these butter grips, I think are really, you know, taking advantage of the fact that I don't have to make an infinite amount of them and hold okay. them like hold a hundred thousand pieces to make it worth it. Right, I'm never going to sell a hundred thousand grips for the Yashica Electro CC. They never made a hundred thousand of them, right? but it's <laughs> it's a camera I know and love, yeah. um, and so you know, I can make the file and maybe sell 500 of them over the next mm-hmm. 10 years and I hold the stock of zero. Mm.
4: Um,
3: and that does make it more expensive per piece as I'm yeah. selling them, right? I would love to sell a grip for $2, but, you know, I sell them for $21. Um, but it
1: means it's, that it's a viable system. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. yeah.
3: I, I would like all of these things to be like so cheap that they become ubiquitous and uh, everybody knows butter grip and camera dactyl. But, you know, I, I think like like if you go buying 1800 pairs of jeans and you only know how to sell 50 uh, pretty quick my house is going to fill up with you know injection molded parts um so yeah I, I would love to have something that's really really popular one day but so far that hasn't been you know the the business model at least for for this sort of thing
2: um i was listening to I'm um, i cannot remember the chap's name at this point so apologies to him but um there was a recent interview with the guy behind POMF, who I'm sure you're familiar with, cameras mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, on the Classic Lenses podcast, um, talking about you know what they want to do to build a camera, what their yeah. dream of a camera is. Um, and one of the things which he said was, well, if we want to get a shutter, there's only really one person, one company making it, and we need a million dollars for mm-hmm. that to work. And yeah. that's... Do you think that that, that is is um, that that is the only way forward with this? Or can you see a way that, no, actually, I think we can... I mean, also recently we've heard that Reflex have hit problems because of shutters. Um, so what's your take on this? Because sure, I know uh, you've looked into shutters yourself.
3: Yeah, I'm on team Reflex here, uh, I think. So I, I have some working shutters that I'm a little hush hush about because I don't have the rest of the camera that I would put them into. And, uh, I don't, you know, like I'm friends with Oscar Owison from, uh, Panamicron and like, you know, Oscar will ask me a question and I'll think like, ah, Oscar is a college kid is not working for a living and he puts everything he does out for free on the internet. And like, generally I tell him because he's smarter than me and we'll get there in two <laughs> weeks anyway. But, um, yeah, for sure. I know for a fact you can build a timeable shutter, uh, very, very cheaply and accurately. It, it is doable. I think, um, reflex will get there very, very quick, particularly in a camera like POMF or uh, reflex that's already going through FCC, or I think the EU equivalent is CE testing,
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, you know, they're already paying for that testing. There's no more uh, high-frequency noise generated by that shutter. And, like, if you take apart a part of Yashica Electro, it's very simple how the thing works, right? It's all just a mechanical shutter with, like, a little solenoid interrupt. And, like, it uses a, um, a LRC or just an RC timing circuit. But right now you would use an Arduino, which controls the rest of, uh, you know, the rest of the reflex, at least. Um I think it's really easy and doable, uh, and and it's going to come, right? If not for me, then I think the guys at Reflex will do it. The issue is, right, so I've built a bunch of shutters that don't necessarily fit into any camera other than my imaginary camera that I had not finished yet. Um, they wouldn't necessarily slot right into a Reflex camera or slot right into a pond camera in the same way that maybe, like, the couple square did for... Absolutely every camera built since 1980, you know. Um, but I, I think it's coming. It's tricky. Um, it's not really necessarily a 3D printing problem. Um, it's maybe more of a CNC machining or, or casting problem. Um, things got to be really small, and it's it's tricky. But, yeah, we're going to see it. It's It's happening.
2: Yeah. And are you fairly bullish about these new cameras coming online? You 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 seem very confident that reflex are going to get there, Um, and you obviously you're you're in conversation with other people because one one of the conversations we've been having kind of in our own uh, private (laughs) Sony sixteen channel, and Ada asked a very good question about um, what happens when we we kind of pass the the pivotal number of cameras packing up and not being able to work again. Do you do you think that? the future of the of new cameras coming online is viable
3: i don't know you know so again i think uh i'm going to be honest but i i don't uh, uh, uh this is not maybe the best marketing but i think the only thing that will stop film photography would be like uh kodak or ilford stopping making film and even then i think uh doc will figure out how to cook film or i will (laughs) um but i think the problem is not can people make cameras we like we are electrical and mechanical engineers aplenty these days um we've already proven that you can build an icon and you can build an icon at quantity and reasonably cheaply the question is is it economically viable to build an icon in a batch of Five thousand, say, instead of the hundred thousand they made. I'm just making these numbers up, but you know what I'm saying is that that you know i I've been making these really simple uh, four by fives that are pretty easy to bring to market, but they're a very small market of people. Like maybe one in a hundred people still shoots film, and maybe one in fifty of those people would ever shoot four by five, right? Um, there's certainly a bigger market for thirty-five millimeter, but maybe somewhere in between for medium format. Um, it might take me a hundred thousand dollars worth of prototyping time to build a Mamiya Seven. Right? Time and energy and machinery, yada yada. Uh, it might take uh, reflex, you know, half a million. Um, the question is, could they ever earn it back selling cameras in this day and age? And certainly, the Mamiya Seven selling for thirty-five hundred dollars these days is a is a helpful thing to that endeavor but maybe it's going for that price because there's just not you know such a high uh, turnover right? not not a huge um certainly not a huge supply but i i don't know that there is a huge demand for them it's hard to tell um and i'm you know i'm just one guy looking out i i think you know, certainly I won't be able to help myself whether it's profitable or not. I'm going to release five or six more cameras over the next couple of years. i got an 8x10 coming out in a month or two. But, uh, yeah, I, I think like the more complicated things are really not a question of whether we can do it technologically, right? We've been doing it in Japan for 50 years excellently, right, in Germany. Um, but the question is, is, is there enough people buying film cameras and new film cameras that that it's going to make sense for you know reflex to sink another million in um and i i don't know um i think the answer is probably like the guys at reflex are are more than likely crazier than me and we'll just keep doing it and so i'm optimistic Uh, yeah
2: yeah no well that's it's good to hear i mean i think it's a thing we're all worried about to a certain extent because, I mean, I break cameras on a regular basis. <laughs> <I'm> leaving <laughs> One, out on one a week, I
0: think, at the moment, isn't it? And it's,
2: it's probably getting up to about that. Um, so what can we expect then? In the, Because given your turnover rate i'm sure there are a few things like well this week this thing next week next thing Mm -hmm. um what's the next thing that we can kind of look forward to hitting so because i love the fact that all the things that we've talked about the butter meter the film facts all of this stuff is all on your store ready for people to buy right now they can go to cameradactyl.com it's all there which is amazing that's Um, an excellent plug yeah yeah everybody should go to cameradactyl.com um what can we expect next and how long and this is a big question before you think maybe we could see a camera. Cause the one thing about all your cameras so far is um we have to buy lenses for them uh, mm-hmm. because it's all, and I'll be honest as somebody who's looking forward to getting hold of an Intrepid soon, uh, that's harder than I thought it would be. I mean, I know that everyone goes, oh, there's loads of them out there, but it's confusing and complicated. And, um, and a lot of them are in Japan and you pay a fortune to get them over here. And what if you get the wrong one? And yeah, oh, yada yeah, they, yeah, um, so how long before, you're going to put something together which doesn't involve me having to hunt down a lens separately
3: okay so uh there's two questions in there right i'll I'll answer the second one first which is uh about building lenses i am very interested in building lenses this is uh the highest fruit on the tree for me right so we have programs like z max and and other optical ray tracing programs and so that um i could design lenses all day long right and i i have a couple friends who have done this professionally um but um, you cannot 3D print a lens yet. Um, the manufacture of lenses is much harder. Um, and so like an interesting thing is like if you look at um, Google patents, you can see the patents for um, you know Zeiss Planar, and they're open source by now. It's, they were you know made more than 70 years ago or something like that. Um, but if you read them uh, you will notice that there's like six elements and maybe five different indices of refraction. right? And so even if I had the ability to grind glass, um, and I can certainly buy the blanks from China, uh, and I could make the machines to grind glass or buy them for a little bit more money, um, I can only buy glass in a certain number of indices of refraction, which maybe I could back-calculate new new lens shapes, given the fact that you only have a few indices of refraction at, uh, at your disposal. But I think it's really, really hard to do if you don't have a glass boundary, if you're not somebody like Corning, um, which Corning is not going to deal with me, right? They are way too big and important to make, you know, a lens, uh, run of 500 lenses for Ethan. And so I'm, I'm really interested in some like new, uh, resin technologies from Formlabs, and I've got like a couple experiments a uh, brewing with some friends about vacuum casting some different uh, resins and uh, like optical resins for um, traditionally things like, like fiber optic and telecom uh, applications. But um, the, the real trick is to be able to get a variable index of refraction optical resin that you can cast without bubbles. Uh, which this is again like uh, a lot of you know I can talk about it but it's it's not uh, a lot of it is kind of beyond me right I'm not a good chemist um, and so it's something that a couple of friends and I are tinkering with I'm sure it's something that others are tinkering with more professionally out there but it's is really really hard to get multiple lens elements can can you um, or to make multiple elements um, in in the specs that you would want to design to make something like, you know, one of my favorite lenses, the Nikon 35mm F2 or uh, the Zeiss Planar 80 2.8. But um, I think we might start seeing people making, like, decent two and three element lenses, petzels out of uh, eyeglass elements that they've ground and cut from Alibaba. But, um, you know, the real the real, like, nice stuff, I think we're going to be kind of kind of uh, stuck with what's out there for a little while. But then, you know, Formlabs with uh, their new, like, SLA printers might might change this all, you know, in a week uh, if, if they release some sort of optical resin for lens making. I don't know. I'm, I'm tracking it. I don't really know what the answer to that is.
2: I mean, given given your funky stylings and your form factor um, and how difficult it is to make complex lenses at the moment, um, have you ever heard of holgers because they seem quite popular and the yeah. lenses in those don't yeah. seem
3: super complicated yeah no i mean i could make holger lenses all day for a couple of bucks on on aliexpress in fact great um, where could we um, get your, that camera your, your nemesis graham from the homemade camera podcast graham young <laughs> who's a friend of mine is, i'm familiar um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't know that you know you guys are nemeses oh but, yeah i do definitely uh, yeah Great. Um, he is working on a bunch of uh, this sort of thing, like single element and double element meniscus lenses. For uh, I, I think he's been doing a bunch of work on like lumen boxes, but I would expect to see him release a camera or two with a set of Holga-like lenses. Um, for me, you know, I grew up in a in an age when like I we used film like for we used film for precision and <laughs> ultimate sharpness, which is not something like. You know, I think to take a good picture. You just got to point your camera at something interesting. But um, I'm not super into the Holga lens uh, thing. And and as film becomes more and more expensive, like I also have a briefcase of old weird vintage lenses that I stick on things. Uh, you know, I just I want to I want to release like toys, but toys that that people can get. Um, you know really nice sharp uh you know uh precision results from and repeatable results which is not to say like i i I appreciate the whole guy i just bought a diana the other day but um i don't think i will release any like plastic lens cameras maybe maybe i will eat my words and i will come on your show and apologize uh, in a year (laughs) from now yeah Uh, but yeah I'd, i'd really like to make some very sharp lenses
2: That does make a lot of sense, but on the other hand, do you like money? Because I bet people give you money.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I do, but but have you thought about selling jeans? Um, (laughs) Yeah. So that I I think lenses are probably a long way off for me. That being said, um, you know I I listen to a Classic Lenses podcast. I've got a bunch of classic lenses on my desk. Um, One of the really interesting lenses to me is the Jupiter Eight. It's a fifty millimeter f two. And you can get it in a couple mounts, but generally I'd like a screw. Um, and then also the Kiev uh, 80 millimeter 2.8, uh, it's like a Volna or an RSAT. I think those are two really underrated, very, very cheap, extremely plentiful lenses that I would like to build cameras around. Um, you know, and, and they're like the type of lenses that you can buy for 50 bucks. Um, and like the Kiev lens, I think is a little nicer than my Hasselblad lens, um, which is, you know, it's a bold claim. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, really, I really dig those lenses. And, um, yeah, I, I think it would not be surprising if I put out, um, some cameras that are built around, uh, FSU or former Soviet Union lenses, that sort of thing. But in the meantime, um, I've got a couple other projects that I had on this other computer that died. Um, I think the next thing that I'm going to release is, a uh, folding eight by 10, much like the camera dactyl four by five. Um, the, the original you know field camera. Um, this won't be a hand camera, it'll be like a, you know fold up with a bellows. Um, but it's sort of based around my learning to use this laser cutter. Um, so the original field camera took 140 hours of print time, um, plus many hours of making the bellows and grinding the glass, etc cetera. Um, the 8x10 that I've been working on, uh, I used 3D printed parts to clamp all of the things together and uh, make all of the screw fittings, but I just switched to using metal hardware because it's more durable for screws and things like that, and um, I've been laser cutting wood to make all of the big pieces, which really, like, it It gets the time down from 140 hours of print time to about 40 hours, and then it still takes a bunch of hours to cut out all of the pieces and glue it all together, but I think it should be like another fun and wacky, crazy tropical bellows type of thing that you know, should work just as good as any other 8x10. That
2: sounds very cool. So how far away is that?
3: Uh kind of when I get around to it. Um, <laughs> no, I, I had actually months ago, I had 95% of it done. Um, it, was a working camera but i didn't like how flexible it was i wanted it to be really stiff so that you could take pictures in the wind or whatever and not have your front standard bounce around and so i designed a bunch of uh sort of stiffening numbers and, and thickened some pieces but um then i got involved in the light meter and then the four by five and then the film cases and so Uh, right now i'm filling some orders and maybe next week i will get back to making the second prototype and then you know either it'll be available a week or two after that or i will find something i don't like about it and then it'll uh, either be fixed in another (laughs) i was just reading this thing Uh, it'll be fixed in another week or two or um, you know it will get shelved behind another bunch of products but i i think I think the next thing I'm going to put out will be that 8x10. And the, that one I'm going to do, um, I think, you know, the, the original Kickstarter campaign was really murder because I let everybody pick their own colors for everything. And so it just took me a, a lot of time to make custom things. This one I think I'll just do in batches of 10, and I'll probably make, like, five in all black and five in, you know, individual wacky colors and sell them as sort of one-off... Uh, you know i don't want to say art pieces but um you know special editions if you will and then i'll just you know sell them out and then make another batch of 10 or something like that
2: that sounds awesome one of the things i love about your website ethan is that you have a link on there just saying basically request something just ask oh yeah <laughs> um, and i would love to know um from aid and rach uh if you, you you've got ethan here Aid, what would you like him to make for you? If you could say, okay, th- here's the thing that is missing from my camera arsenal. Oh, I love this. What could,
0: come on, Aid. What would it uh, be? That, that, you, you you put me on the spot because, of course, I I don't do in in the way that in the way that some people do. I, I don't I don't do the whole camera differences thing. I, I I've tried. I've tried quite hard over the last couple of years to. Uh, well, well. To put it bluntly, to minimise the number of cameras that I have. Um, Smart man. Uh, yeah. So you know, I I have a you know it's it, uh, I whilst I fully appreciate every everything that yeah the the vast array of things that people can ask for. Do you know I I don't have that in me. Um, yeah, I I I don't uh, I, I don't have the whole crazy crazy camera thing in me um let me think let me think do you know what um i liked the idea of um uh, a light meter that works uh with with the the ashika range finders because i had an electro um and it broke (laughs) um so so having a light meter that that worked with that would be good i think for me yeah it's oh is is it, it would be something uh, uh it, it, i think it would be something that allow that is useful across the range of what people have um but but ultimately uh and I think you're yeah, going back to what Graham was saying you know the conversations we've been having about the what happens when all the cameras break ultimately we need somebody to make a shutter mechanism mm-hmm. That, that can go in 90% of cameras. That that That's the thing. If I think about the future of, of film photography, that's the thing that I, I, I don't see an answer to just yet. So, sorry, the hard thing is what I'd like.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that the shutter, uh, I, I'm much more comfortable saying that we can build shutters than we can build glass, right? Because I think shutter is a much more mechanically complicated thing, but it doesn't require um such a crazy manufacturing facility or maybe i just don't know enough about glass casting
0: <laughs> well i i have a perception right that there are probably five times as many lenses out there as cameras right yes. because no nobody has just look, all right not nobody but the majority of people when they bought a camera in the past would have more than one lens at, at least over time right mm-hmm. So I would say uh you know I'm less worried about us running out of lenses.
3: Yeah and I think they don't wear as much right like um a shutter is rated for 100 000 to 300,000 actuations and then it's kaput. A lens is not such a violently mechanical thing.
0: Yeah, um, good point. Yeah yeah so 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 if if lenses are hard yeah that's a shame but i'm i'm less worried about that on a personal basis yeah speaking from a position of total ignorance you <laughs> know which is my luxury <laughs> um so yeah I, i'd like i'd i think a shutter please
3: <laughs> working on it <laughs>
0: yeah yeah one that will go up to a four thousandth of a second mechanically that'd be great and if it could be a leaf shutter so i could synchronize my flash at any of those speeds that'd be even better
3: (laughs) yeah so you know i uh have a leaf shutter prototype that uh has been um shelved indefinitely but i i think um you know i've been working on focal plane shutters i think those are really hard to just drop in to any camera body. They're pretty integral to the whole thing, how you fit everything together. Um, And leaf shutters are can mount much easier in a lot of cameras, right? Just behind a lens or in front of a lens or even in the middle of it, I think. Um, If I don't get there first, somebody's going to beat me to it in the next year or two for sure.
0: Okay, so this is this is a, 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 an encouraging conversation then, yeah. because uh, that's um, it, because those are the things that I worry about. So for me, as you said, you know, if you think about this, it's great that yeah you know, we've got a, a. It's amazing that the film community is growing. It's amazing that yeah you know, we we seem to have been through the trough of film photography and out, coming out the other side, and it's it's a growing thing again, albeit at a very different scale from how it used to be. Um, but you could look at you know and as we did uh, we, we spoke to the guys at Ilford and we and we've spoken to kodak and they they' variously they're in various different stages of uh, rescaling their businesses to be economically viable right so I I, I worry less about that perhaps um, although we do hear some rumors at the moment as we record this show of, of Kodak alaris maybe being put up for sale but um yeah, you know, those companies have been through those tough times and, and and some of them have come out the other side of it successfully. But this hardware issue, oof.
2: Yeah. Same question to you, Rach. You've got Ethan here. Yes. He, he's pretty much promised to make Anything that you ask <laughs> uh, And not Ooh. only will he make it for you, yes. a couple of weeks, he'll mock it out. And perfect, you. perfect. What 40, you want?
1: 14 days, please. Um, in, in my, in my two-week uh, time frame, to be, to be fair, this is quite often the way that it goes for me. I'm like, oh, I need this. I need it, like, yesterday. So um, that sounds good to me. I'm rubbing my hands with glee. I would love a um, Hasselblad back, please. That would be very cool. Can you make mm. me something like an A12 for, for my Hasselblad? No, I cannot. God damn it.
3: Uh, and I'll <laughs> tell you why. So um, I actually built, I, I use a Hasselblad 500CM all the time. Yes. Um, and I actually built um, a chimney finder for it that holds my iPhone so that <laughs> I can use my iPhone as like a digital viewfinder and just take pictures. You know, nice. through the waist level yeah and it worked really well but the deal with the Hasselblad is that because you know it's it's like a really wonderful system camera but everything is made out of metal and they use a lot of fine connections and so where the waist level finder slides in you know it's something like maybe a millimeter maybe a little less um, Mm. of that lip that just slides in right and so my chimney finder is fine once it's installed, but once you take it off, it becomes super brittle on that lip because I mm-hmm. can only make it in plastic, right? I could certainly make it yeah. out of metal, but the the CNC company would charge me maybe $1,000 to produce Oof. It's not worth it, right? Yeah. Um, the same deal with the back is that those little, uh, you know, having, having uh, divots in the bottom of the back mm-hmm. would be fine, but the little clips that hook into the top, you know, like very small and fine mechanical interactions become really hard for me to do because mm. um intellectually I think it's it's not super hard because you can blow everything up on a computer and look at tiny things, but um uh, just Is it the physicality of so it? Yeah, right, when yeah. it's small. Which is why like you'll see most of my designs are like a little oversized and chunky is because I don't want you know, I want you to be able to kick it down a sure. flight of stairs and still work, but um yeah, and, and so maybe there's there's new encouraging SLA printing techniques, uh, maybe some casting techniques, but I am really limited in um, the the minimum size that I can make a part, right? If, I don't know if you've taken an A12 apart, but there are a lot of tiny gears and springs in there. Yes,
1: I have. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, and it was a nightmare.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: I did that. Yeah. It was a silly thing to do.
3: <laughs> I was like, yeah. this will be fine. It will just
1: be the light seals. Turns out it wasn't the light seals. Um, and before I knew it, I had a whole worktop full of sm- t- small, tiny, tiny, tiny pieces and springy things that were flying around all over the place. And uh, yeah. So, um, and I just didn't end up with the time to sit down and put it all back together together as well <laughs> um, so
2: swept it into the bin so,
1: well not into the bin but back into like a box <laughs> um, oh yeah 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 all fine um, but that's the thing it was uh, it was a case of ha huh, maybe I should just buy the bullet and buy a new back for it um, so yeah it's sometimes it's a, <clears throat> I can understand what you were saying about you know the fact that with it being plastics that you're working with that the, um, the, the room for um, uh, error in in terms of like the thickness of the uh, the plastics and things like that. When it has to be very fine, very delicate uh, mm-hmm. kind of work, it it's not quite the right material for that, um, which can make it a bit of a nightmare.
3: Yeah. yeah, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that there will be new sort of uh, metal or resin mm-hmm. printing technologies mm-hmm. that are coming out. Yeah. <clears throat>
2: well listen before we get out of here because i mean i i also feel like i need to ask for something it'd be weird Uh, i really want you mentioned earlier about the Hasselblad x-pan and um i want something nice and wide as well because i'm quite Jealous of Matthew's lovely wide pictures mm-hmm. that he makes. Um, so can you make me something that's kind of 6x17 um, but super cheap and preferably works with the lens I already have so you know. <laughs> I don't know. What is the lens you have? I don't know, I mean, can you make a, a camera like that that works with just any random 50mm and then 42 months. we've got loads of those <laughs>
3: um, So, no, because those... those Are you can- a
2: new Mexican or a new Mexicard?
3: Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, so the answer is yes and no, actually, so um, M42 lenses are never going to cover I was going to say, guys. it's
1: not going to cover that, is it, but, that area? Um,
3: mm. You will be happy to know um, Put two on the, it the, One of the <laughs> projects that I have going is a 6x12 back for the camera OG It's not ready yet, right now it's just a film shredder but uh, <laughs> once, once it stops shredding film I will release that and then um, if that's successful, I will do a six by twelve and six by seventeen version of the Cameradactyl OG. It's sort of like the next, next version. So <gasps> you cannot mount a M forty two lens on it successfully, but um, <laughs> you know uh, a standard large format lens. Success for
1: sure. never held him back, did nope. it?
3: <laughs> Look, a small amount of vignetting, I'm sure, will be fine.
1: How about a stereoscope? Could you create us one of
3: those? Um, actually funny. You should mention that. Uh, I, I built a bunch of stereo cameras, uh, digital stereo mm-hmm. cameras back in the day, which you can see at EthanMoses.com slash 3d. If you have a pair of red and blue glasses, um, nice. but I actually uh, do. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> great. They're, you know, from 15, 20 years ago or something like that, but, uh, I do not update my own website. Um, yeah, I've, Considered making some stereo equipment, um, stereo viewers, mm. um, certainly the optics for that is, is pretty easily purchasable on AliExpress. Um, as for stereo cameras, I, I use a lot of software in my stereo pictures that, that like adding, uh, developing and scanning in the middle is not something that I'm super into, but, um, yeah, I would, I would consider maybe if I got enough requests, uh, making some, some stereoscopic equipment awesome sounds very good. So, cool.
0: it sounds it sounds like you, you you've taken on the challenge there ethan and you've proven that you can pretty much make anything so
3: well i mean so long as it's a film shredder and not a working <laughs> bag
4: <laughs>
3: fair enough fair enough
0: okay well i tell you what we we've been talking for ages and it's been thoroughly enjoyable and uh but uh, uh yeah wow um are you all right there aid i am um, i'm just it's just that there's a whole world of possibility yeah you know, something that like i've been worrying about for ages about like the whole of the film com- photography capability dying because you know b- b- for want of manufacturing capability um it turns out actually uh our superhero is here to save us all <laughs> and 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 to clothe us as well (laughs) okay all right we've put we've put you on the spot long enough Ethan. but thank you um uh, thank you ever so much for joining us and describing all this the, the the stories you're telling and the capabilities you have are just amazing um have you enjoyed being on the show
3: Hey, um, thank you so much for having me on the show. First of all, it's, it's great. I'm a regular listener, uh, although I'm friends with uh, Graham's nemesis. <laughs> uh, well,
0: go, go, go. I mean, yeah, that's a long list of people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. uh, you, if, if you if you play the six degrees game, you know, you, you're, you're going to have a handful in there no matter
4: what. <laughs>
2: Nemesi? Is that the plural of nemesis? Nemesi? I don't know. I I have a lot. But I'm pleased to hear what you're saying about Graham over at the Homemade Camera. He's starting his own line of scammers. I'm glad that that's what he got from that investigation. Great. I'm actually
3: uh... uh, uh, printing some of Graham's scammers for him. Oh, (laughs) God. Well. I've got, I've got my hammer ready to go for the next uh, gen of scammers. No, they're really good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I like them. I take pictures with them. <laughs> this is the 24 square. Check them out on uh, Etsy. I think it's the frozen, frozen Photon Camera Company.
2: There you go. Check them out. Find one of those and buy a hammer at the same time, just in
4: case.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on, moving on. Right. So, so I mean, you, you've mentioned, I mean, clearly we spent a lot of time talking uh, about Cameradactyl uh, today. And uh, you can find Cameradactyl at Cameradactyl.com. Are there any other places on the internet you'd like our listeners to go see stuff?
3: uh yeah so i'm cameradactyl.com and at cameradactyl on instagram and twitter and also at buttergrip on instagram for everything that's not a camera basically
0: okay all right well we'll put links to those in the show notes um uh the listeners go and, and check this stuff out and um uh, Yeah, and uh, if it meets your colourful photographic needs, (laughs) then then order some stuff today. Also Uh, available.
1: In
3: black. uh, (laughs) Also
0: available. I am sorry. Yes, that is an important part of the marketing. This is like the opposite of Henry Ford, isn't it? It's also available.
2: Also available with a pair of jeans.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Although it sounds like a, a, a sizable baggy pair of jeans. But on the on the plus side, um, you can fit large format film holders in the pockets. And you can't say that about many clothes.
3: True. Photographer's jeans coming next Monday. <laughs> at yes,
0: uh, they'll suit the vests that all our listeners have.
1: <laughs> I'm waiting for the uh, the denim patch butter grip, I think. That'll be next.
0: Yeah uh okay right um so uh, we have been uh, the sunny 16 podcast um and, and it's been great to have you on ethan uh you can get in touch with us also on the internet um we are the sunny 16 podcast pretty much everywhere um uh, yeah instagram twitter facebook email us sunny 16 podcast at gmail.com and if you have enjoyed the show this show and and possibly some of other ones but don't go too far back in the back catalogue um but if you've enjoyed our shows and you would like to buy us a cup of coffee uh you can find us at coffee.com slash sunny 16 podcast there'll be a link to that in the show notes as well um and uh, I, I know that through the backing paper show uh we have been saying a, a big thank you to everybody that that's helped Helping us out, um, and uh, we recognise as well. I think this is usually Graham's line that not everybody listens to backing paper, so we'll say it here too. Thank you ever so much to everybody who has supported us so far. Really makes um, uh, some of our ambish- ambitions for the show uh, a little bit easier to achieve. So thank you. Uh, we will pa- play, pay, play you out. Even <laughs> um, <laughs> there we go. Money on the mind, and um, uh, we will play you out now uh, with uh, music by Rocker. Uh, which, of course, is Rach's band. Um, And you can find their album, Promises I Should Have Kept, on Spotify, Amazon, iTunes, uh, Geocities, (laughs) MySpace, um, (laughs) DARPAnet.
4: Wow, yeah.
0: <laughs> but maybe best to go for one of those more modern platforms because yes. some of them are slightly hard to find these days, those are. <laughs> um, but yes, we will play you out as always with, with Rocker. Um, thank you to Rocker for allowing us to use their music, of course. Um, it has been an honour and a privilege to speak with you all. Uh, we will speak to you next week. Goodbye.
2: Goodbye. Bye. Boom, boom, <laughs> boom, boom, boom,
4: boom. <laughs>